Hello and welcome to the Time to Unwind podcast. Um, I'm James and today I'm joined by John and our guest is the delightful Chris Vale, um, owner and founder of NTH Watches, uh, based out of Philadelphia in the US of A. He founded NTH back in 2016 uh, with a specialism in diver watches um, and obviously the brand's if you're on what you seek or in the watch forums, it's a brand I'm sure you'll have heard of because Chris is a very um, active member of the watch community. And, you know, it's one of the sort of the seminal micro brand owners, I guess. Um, and yeah, one of the sort of the pillars of the community, if you will. Um, so the brand's got quite the reputation out there amongst us watch nerds. Um, so if you're unfamiliar, um, well, this is sort of an introduction for you. So, yeah, welcome, Chris. Thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. No worries. No worries. Um, so uh, the reason we've got you on, of course, is because we are now your official UK distributor, aren't we? It's got off to a great start. Um, and I'm pleased to say we've sold um, quite a few watches since uh, we launched, uh, what was it, three weeks ago now, I think? Maybe less. Two or three weeks. It, yeah. Time flies, but uh, that's brilliant. I'm happy that you're, you know, things are working out well with NTH in your store. Hopefully, long may it continue. The Tropics are launching soon, your latest collection. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about, about them and the inspiration for them and sort of what, what, what they represent and why they're sort of different to what else, you know, you've got in the current, current lineup of the rest of NTH? Sure. So um, the whole brand is inspired uh, or, or typically inspired by vintage watch designs. I take inspiration from everything from the mid fifties to and through the mid seventies, early eighties, but I kind of view that as sort of the golden age of watch design. Um, so typically most of our models, especially the NTH subs, which are our core model are divers with external bezels, but I've always liked the uh, internal bezel, you know, sort of compressor styled watches. Mm. Um, and, you know, there, there's a there's a history there of compressor cased watches from the 50s through the 70s. A lot of brands made them. They were kind of uh, a genre in and of themselves that doesn't doesn't get seen as much today. So yeah. I think they're an interesting alternative. I think that they're less toolish than external bezel watches. So you can mm -hmm. kind of pass them off as more of a dressy diver. I think they're um, interesting. If it's fun to fiddle with an external bezel, it's just as much fun to fiddle with an internal bezel. Um, and, you know, they wear differently and they present different challenges from a design perspective. So it's interesting, you know, to work on those as projects go. But um, yeah, so it's, it's we, we came out with the version one back in 2017. It was actually the second model range we released uh, mm -hmm. after the subs, which are again, our core model. And um, we sold them through the end of 2017, early into 2018, and they haven't been seen since. So we wanted to revisit that basic design, uh, freshen it up a bit, and come back out with a version two, which is what's coming out near the end of this month or early next. That's quite a gap in sort of between the Gen 1 and Gen 2. What what sort of was the, the reason for that? Is it Was it sort of sales figures or... Was it just that, you know, you didn't have the time to focus on on that secondary model because of the, the other ranges or well, just, just talk us through, really? A, a little bit of, of, of everything. Um, yeah. So my experience has been that, you know, there's a reason why 
diving watches sell so well, especially diving watches with external yeah. bezels. They're popular. Uh, mm -hmm. And internal bezel models are a little bit less popular. And they do wear differently. They wear a little bit larger, but yet most customers, especially watch enthusiasts, are very focused on dimensions. So the numbers can be a little bit deceiving with compressor cases or internal bezel models, they tend to be all dials. So mm. if someone sees a 40 millimeter case size and thinks that too, that's too small, they may not buy it. Whereas if somebody knows they wear bigger and they prefer a 40, they may not buy it because they know it might wear more like a 42. So there's yeah. that aspect of it. They just don't, they don't sell as well, quite honestly. Um, mm. But also we, so we released those in 2017, nothing to do with how well they sold. Near the end of 2017, um, we were featured on uh, a, a YouTube channel with a very large following. We saw really explosive growth coming from that, but in particular, an explosion in demand for the NTH subs. So mm -hmm. throughout, you know, we already had the Devil Ray in production at that point. That was a late 2017 pre-order pre that we were releasing in early 2018. But with the demand, the huge surge in demand for the subs, for the next two years, 2018, 2019, that's all we made because it was mm. what the market wanted, but also yeah. all we could afford. The, the Devil Ray pre-order we did in 2017 was the last time we did pre-orders. We've been financing our own production ever since. So as the, you know, the owner of the business and the guy who has to make these decisions, I had to consider how much we could sell, how quickly we could sell, but also what we could afford to produce. And when there's so much clear demand for one model, yeah. We were basically selling watches faster than we could make them. All I could afford to do was produce subs for the next two years. Which is in many ways a wonderful position to be in. It was a good problem to have for a while. Yeah. I mean, it took us a while to figure out. We're still, you know, it's always a challenge. You know, sales figures go in and out, up and down, month to month, year to year, especially when you get thrown a curveball like COVID. So, uh, it took us a while to, to avoid being sold out of everything for months at a time, which happened a couple of times in 2018. Um, yeah. 2019, we started to get a better handle on it. But then, of course, 2020 threw us a big curveball. So we're still kind of figuring out the numbers and dialing things in. But, yeah. you know, yeah, we're, we're back. And, and I, the, the sales, the demand for subs has tapered off a bit. So it gave us an opportunity to catch our breath and come back and say, okay, we're going to make another devil ray. We're going to make another round mm. of tropics. We're going to make a larger sub. We have time and resources now to, to diversify the product range a bit more than we did in 2018, 2019. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes complete sense. Um, which actually leads me on to um, another question, which is which watch is your bestseller? By which I mean, which model of sub? I mean, I'm going to assume it's a sub that's your bestseller. Um, but what is there a specific variant that sells outsells the others noticeably, or is it fairly evenly split among a few? It's a great question, and, and it's something I look at a lot. It really depends on on when you're looking at it. So you know, typically, no matter how well a model sells, you're going to sell most of them in the early days, right after release, and then those sales will gradually taper off over time. So if you happen to have just released a new model yesterday that's going to be your best selling model today. Mm. But over time, you can kind of get a sense for, you know, how many have we sold in the aggregate or total of each version of each model, but also how quickly did they sell, which is a better indicator of real demand. So I would yeah. say, you know, obviously the subs have been very successful for us. It's how we launched the brand. And that really kind of put us on the map in a big way very quickly. Um, mm. And those have historically been our best selling models, but the devil Ray, 
especially the second version we brought out in 2020 was very popular initially. Mm. And, and it went through that same sort of pattern, big spike in sales at first, and then the sales started to taper off over time. Um, the subs are still our core model, our bestseller. And in that range, um, if you would ask me six months ago, I would have said the neck in modern blue um, with the Barracuda Vintage Black right behind it. These days, I think the Barracuda Vintage Black has proven to be the better seller within our last few releases where we had you know, enough time for demand for either to kind of dissipate. And now we just kind of see sustained demand. I think the sustained demand for the Barracuda is a little bit stronger. And that's sort of, the, I guess, that um, the appeal of the vintage sort of uh, sub homage, isn't it, really? Like like that proper vintage Rolex, 1960s James Bond sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're similar designs. What differs in, in you know, same handset shape. Mm. Um, how they differ is the dial pattern. You know, the, mm. the neck in is obviously inspired by the snowflake subs. Mm. Um, and I think the neck in is a more modern design, hence the name, neck in modern blue. And the Barracuda is more vintage inspired, even though it very closely yeah. resembles the Tudor Black Bay 58, but that's also very vintage inspired. So if you look at the design, the colors, the little details, the Barracuda Vintage Black has more of a vintage feel to it, I think, than the Nack and Modern Blue. Yeah, I know what you mean. On a separate note to that then, um, which of your ranges has excited you the most on, on launch? Which, which is your personal favorite, I guess? My, it, it varies. I mean, you know, there's, yeah. I run a business and it's meant to make a profit. So there's always yeah. the thrill of, we know this is going to be, you know, a great seller uh, yeah. or the or opposite, the anxiety of God, we don't know how this is going to do until we do it. Yeah. Um, so there's always that feeling with every release. And mm -hmm. even if, if it's a popular range, there, every model, no matter how popular it is, has a, a a, a life cycle. Eventually you reach the end. You never know when it's going to happen. So there's always that anxiety. Um, but then there's also the thrill of the creative process coming to life and, and, and reaching the end result of, I can now sell this creation to the public. So, you know, the one that I think excited me the most personally was the Devil Ray. It, it is, I think, our most original design, hmm. our most complex design. It was the one that was probably the most challenging for various reasons. Uh, it was the one that I think really presented the, the, the most densely packed balance of originality, complexity, um, hmm. but also value. The original V1 had a Swiss movement from STP. It was our high, uh, one of our higher priced watches at the time. Hmm. You know, so there, there's a lot that goes into this, but yeah, the Devil Ray is, is a personal favorite of mine. And, you know, I don't wear my, my Devil Rays as much as I wear my subs for various mm -hmm. reasons, but I think it's my, our, our best design work. So that's obviously something we're very proud of. Fair enough. John is a very big fan um, of the Devil Ray. Yeah, I, I like, yeah, I do really like the Devil Ray. Yeah. Thank uh, you. I appreciate that. The, is, is that the only difference between the, the original version and the second one then, the movement? The movement... Um, there's some subtle differences. We have a different bracelet and clasp. The original was a more complex bracelet with an expansion clasp. We had some issues with that bracelet post post production. Uh, so we wanted to simplify that to lower the defect rate. Um, okay. we had complaints about the expansion clasp being too thick or too sharp. They don't, they're not as securely okay. closing as a, as the one we use now. Um, okay. we made a few different, uh, subtle changes to 
the dial, the, the loom color on the black and the white versions are, is different. It was C5, which was mint green. Now it's just pure white. So there's some subtle differences. Case design is very slightly changed, same dimensions, but the difference in movement meant changing the, uh, the depth of the case back and the crown height slightly. But for the most part, it's the same watch, okay. just with a different movement. Okay. And if you were to remake it, what, what are you thinking movement-wise for the remade version? I think strategically it makes sense to continue with the Seiko movement because it keeps the price down and it gives the yeah. brand an entry-level model. Um, right. Yeah, good. But, and, and I just I prefer the Japanese movements generally to the Swiss movements. Okay. Yeah, right. No, I think if, if you... I've got a few ideas which we can talk about later in relation sure. to um, design, but I think... Like that would be that's what I would do. So yeah, keep the same movement, and I think I think the case is great. Um, it's really attractive watch. It's great value for money. So uh, I was disappointed when, well, they're 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 the ones that have sold uh, most for us. So we've only got one left. I think now. Um, so it's great that it sold so quickly, but I was disappointed that we we didn't have more more of them to sell. So well, I, I did try to talk you into buying more of them, and and you you, you oh, did almost I? didn't take any, if I <laughs> if I remember correctly. I had to, I had to twist your arm a bit to take any at all. <laughs> that was before I'd seen it in the flesh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All yeah, right. Well, we'll we'll place an order for the, re the remade versions as soon as it's available. You actually touched, Chris, on um, a question that one of our audience members has asked. Um, I don't know where from, but it's someone whose username is Wilco underscore VZYL. So if you're listening, congratulations, we've chosen your question. Um, but they ask, uh, will f future subs feature an ETA2824 replica for a better value proposition? So you mentioned earlier you prefer... Japanese to Swiss movements. So I'm guessing the answer is no. <laughs> well, let, let's, that, that's not a very long question, but I think there's a few things in there that are worth unpacking. And, uh, so the first one is, what do we mean by an ETA re replica? Uh, there, there's mm -hmm. a number of brands are starting to now use a yeah. Chinese made replica. I think it's the PT 5000 or PTS 5000. So, you know, it's that what we use actually is one of okay. the well, I mean, and, you know, this isn't a conversation to be had yeah. live on, on the air, but you know, I wouldn't mind finding out, you know, what does what that movement cost to source mm -hmm. compared to the movements we're using, the Miyota 9015. So, mm. you know, it, it, what's the take on face value that those would be cheaper, lower cost and present yeah. a better value, at least on the surface, because it would allow us to lower the price of the watch. Well, first off, the subs won't fit that movement. It's too thick. So yeah. I would have to redesign it. So there's a challenge right there, but let's just, let's just say that's not a challenge. Let's say it would fit. Um, mm. I, I question the long-term reliability compared to a Japanese movement and not because it's made in China necessarily, just because mm. it's an older, it's a 50 year old design. Um, yeah. You know, can you get a replacement as easily? You can buy a 9015 from almost any uh, parts supplier Will they stock the PT 5000? I don't know. Um, you know, it's typically cheaper to replace these movements than it is to have them serviced. What's the service interval in those movements? So when people talk about value in a watch, they're very often focusing exclusively on the purchase price. But as the manufacturer, what I tend to look at is not just that price, but also what are the long-term ownership costs? How often do you have to service it? What does that cost to service or replace the movement? How reliable is it going to be? How expensive might it be to return it to the manufacturer if there's a warranty issue? You know, th th those types of issues. 
and how frequently that may happen. If we're talking about a Swiss clone, again, I don't know that that's going to be a better value. That's more than likely going to raise the price. And so then we get into, you know, it, it, it segues right into an argument about which is the better movement. Would you rather pay more and get a Swiss movement or pay less and get a Japanese movement? If yeah. the assumption is that I'll just jam a Swiss movement into it and not raise mm. the price, that, that's a bad assumption because that wouldn't happen. I would have to raise the price. And well, I I do, that actually decreases the value. Yeah. Because uh, I do recall, actually, because so, this is a question, as you mentioned before we started the episode, that you've had before. And I do recall on what you see people asking you this question. And your answer was just because the movement costs, I don't know, for example, say $30 more. That doesn't mean the price of the watch would increase by only $30. That means it increases by 30 times whatever my markup is because yeah. I've got to maintain my margins. And it's, well, it's, it's something that people, I don't think, realize on the face of it necessarily. And beyond that, I mean, it's not simply the, the difference in cost, but let's not fall into the logical fallacy that simply because something costs more, that makes it better. Yeah, I, yeah. I think on paper, by any and every objective measure, mm. the Miyota 9015 is, is a better movement than yeah. an ETA 2824. It's adjusted to more positions, guy has, has a longer power reserve. It's thinner, mm. which, you know, isn't a spec, but certainly is a value if we're trying to design thin watches. It's more reliable. Um, doesn't require a service every five to seven years. I mean, there's so many things to say about it. I don't know why people necessarily assume that a Swiss movement is better when on paper, like I said, by every objective yeah. measure of the Miotas, I think a better choice. I think um, a lot of it is just perception because um, I know from experience those those, those Miota movements, they're, um, they only wind one way, don't they? So you do get that free spinning rotor. And it, it, I guess it just, mm. it can, some perceive it as sounding cheap, whereas an, an ETA is, is quiet, you know, or a clone is, is a lot quieter because you don't get that free, that free rotor spin when you move your wrist quickly, basically. So I, th I think that plays a part of it, but I completely agree with what you're saying that specs wise, it's like, <laughs> why, why would I not go with the Japanese choice? I feel like you're trying to wind me up here. <laughs> um, no, because this, this is something that comes up. You know, the, the, the people that say they don't like the 9015 yeah. very often cite the mm. noisy rotor and the rotor, rotor yeah, yeah. bubble. And my, my response to that is a number of things. First off, the, the unidirectional winder is not less efficient by every, mm. you know, but all the data I've seen, and we've got a lot of it, suggests that it's actually more efficient. Um, it allows the movement to be thinner, which, again, is, is something that's important to us as designers. Um, hmm. And I have very few people that actually own the watches yeah. who say, oh, yeah, I hear the rotor all the time. Or if they do, they, they say it's a major annoyance. I mean, it's something that, quite honestly, I, I find the, the wobble and deering and the noise has never been audible for me unless I was mm -hmm. holding the watch to my ear and, and, and listening for it. So I think it's really a non-issue. It's something that people who have a preconceived or, or pre-existing bias in favor of Swiss watches will say mm -hmm. as, as a knock against the Miyota, but I, I look at it as, a, as really a non-issue. Yeah, no, that, that, that's completely fair. And I think, you know, I, I find it hard. You can't really argue, um, I don't think, with, with your logic, because, you know, you raise some very valid points. So... Yeah, I completely get where you're coming from, to be honest. The thickness of the case is is really nice, isn't it? On the on the subs. Well, that's the thing. Like, yeah, it's a very eleven and a half mil, isn't it? Thick the the subs. That's the spec. I mean, you can always get some variance with crystal height 
Um, yeah. And so I've seen people say, well, Chris says it's 11 and a half, but I've measured 11.6 or 11.4. And I think, well, the spec is 11 and a half. There's, there's going to be some variance in assembly. So, but that's the spec. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't be uh, too worried about a point of. No, I'm not worried. It's just, again, it's interesting. Watch enthusiasts as a group tend to very often be very detail oriented. Mm. And that seems like something worth mentioning to some of them, mm, which, you know, course. to non-watch enthusiasts, it's like, it, it's one tenth of a millimeter. Why are you mentioning it? Again, you're dead right. We're a, uh, we're a fussy bunch. So <laughs> it's always best to, uh, you know, uh, curtail expectations, I guess, make sure they're not uh, unreasonable. I, I agree. I think it's for me as a brand owner, it's something I spend a lot of time doing is making mm. sure we're very clear in our communication because our communication is what creates those expectations. And if we yeah. aren't doing that correctly or in a, in a very good mm. way, people are going to be disappointed. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and that actually leads me very nicely onto the next question. Um, talking about communication, because as I mentioned in the intro, you're a very active member of the community. You're on what you seek. I'm going to say daily. <laughs> Um, how important do you think that is for micro brands like yourself to, to have uh, that sort of that interaction that, and be that sort of public face of your brand and not sort of hide behind a company name and marketing? Um, do you think that's sort of key to your success that you've sort of stepped out into the limelight and said, these are my watches and made by me, you know, um, this is my flag in the ground. This is what I stand for. I think they're great. I think so, but I, I admit that I'm not, I, I don't know. Um, the way I look at this is like this. First off, what allows, what allows micro brands to even exist and, and be viable as businesses? I would say it's outsourced manufacturing, the internet, but also social media. Social media mm -hmm. gives us the ability to target smaller slices of what is already a fairly thin market. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a niche within a niche that we're targeting. And it's only through social media that that is something we can do at all, much less in a very cost-effective way, which is what mm. we can do with Instagram and Facebook groups and forums. Um, mm. So I, I think that the viability of, of microbrands as a group is only, only, that viability only exists because we have that ability. So Therefore, I think logically it, it, it follows that microbrands should use it. They, they should make themselves present on social media through Instagram and Facebook groups and on forums. And I, I have a sales background. I, I've, you know, I've always had to, as part of my job, talk to customers. So, you know, it, it just, it never even occurred to me that I could run a business in such a way that I, I never had to have much engagement with customers. I think engaging with customers leads to understanding of what they want and that drives product development. It assists in sales. It becomes a form of marketing in and of itself. Um, there's a downside, obviously, you know, as you've seen, um, not everybody's going to like you, the cut of your jib, what you say, you're going to get in some debates or arguments. I don't think it's possible to be online and be everybody's friend. So it, it, it tends to create haters and trolls and people that really don't like you or your brand and some are going to go pretty far out of their way to cause trouble. But for every one of those, there's probably 10 that go, no, I, I, I like yeah. the guy. I like this guy. I like that he's pursuing his passion. I like that he's making himself available. I like that he stands up to the bully in the room, perhaps. Um, and so I, I feel very strongly that it has been a key component of 
the success my business has had to date. And it's, you know, something that wins us more fans than, um, than enemies. I think, I think you're dead on. And I think putting a face um, to the brand name is, is, is a big draw for people. Um, and it's all sort of, it ties into the sort of idea of like buying local or supporting small businesses. Um, not that your customers are necessarily going to be local to you, but you know what I mean? Rather than going to like the big, big companies that are already out there and, you know, people spending it with you instead, who's a passionate startup. It's sure. not necessarily just, just in it to make money, which I you could argue. the yeah, other. I think, I think what you're, what you're saying is there's an incremental mm. advantage. If all other things mm. are equal, somebody will, will very often choose to buy from, from me because they mm. know I'm a real person yeah. as opposed to buying from Amazon. So, you know, again, if all other, th- all other things are equal, if they're ambivalent about the choices, it may come down to the fact that they know me and they don't know Jeff Bezos. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they'll know how rich he is and they'll think, he, does, he doesn't need the cash, does he? <laughs> well, I, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I mean, I've gotten emails occasionally from guys that say, you know, I, I read what you post to the, to the mm. forums and, you know, I mm. love your backstory. I find you inspiring. And it's always kind of uncomfortable for me to read that. I don't, I don't feel like I should be anybody's role model. I don't picture, I don't think of myself mm. as being an inspiration to anyone, but I think people understand. I started this business when I lost my job. Um, it was a struggle from the very beginning, but we've, you know, we've persisted and persevered, you know, they're, there are themes that you find in literature in that story that I think resonate with people as opposed to, you know, a, a, a centuries old company that's, you know, got decades of heritage or whatever. It's like, all right, well, you know, that that's inspiring to some, but not necessarily going to drive others. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, it's a different, you're targeting, targeting a different kind of customer with different kinds of values really, aren't you? I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, it, for those who, for those who are, who those who find an entrepreneurial story endearing, we have one to tell. And for those who don't care, we don't tell it. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Which actually, talk you, you mentioned there um, about how you know micros and small companies. Uh, so you, you said taking a, a thin slice of an already small slice, um, which sort of again um, raises a another question of what is the biggest challenge sort of facing a business like yours um, in the market today? Um, You know, and how do you continue to compete um, against all these other micros that are cropping up? Um, You know, there's so many, like it's impossible to keep up, um, but obviously it's a very crowded market. I think it's a very sort of current thing that uh, of all these brands, all these startups in the watch community. Um, So yeah, how, how do you, how do you see, yourselves competing with that, I guess, and keeping that edge? It's a tough question to answer because um, there are so many challenges. How do you pick the one that's the biggest? Um, I tend to be very numbers oriented. So my answers are going to lean towards, I, I think that some of the practical realities of the business present the biggest challenges, things like the MOQs, minimum order quantities. You know, the factories want you to make 500 pieces, um, mm. you can sometimes talk them down to 300, but even 300 can be a lot for a startup brand with no, no heritage, no track record to run on 300 pieces is a lot of watches to sell. And that, M- that MOQ and also the production time, which is minimum three months, typically four or five and with delays, easily six or more, it's very difficult to predict the future, future demand 
two, two weeks ahead, much less six months ahead or four months ahead. And then when you combine that with the enormous order quantities and the challenges small brands have in spreading the message about their, their, their business, especially pre-launch, um, mm. I think it drives a lot of decisions regarding pricing, a lot of smaller brands. I just basic economics. If you have a bigger brand, a more well-known brand, you can put a higher price on it because that's the power of having a brand. If you don't have a yeah. big, well-known, well-established brand, you're going to be forced to price your product lower. So micro brands already price their products lower than mainstream brands. And then on top of that, the younger your business is, the closer you are to being in pre-launch, the more pressure you're going to feel to lower your price in order to make your life easier and sell more quickly because you can't afford to sit on three or 500 pieces of inventory for very long. Your business is going to have overhead operating costs and the revenue that you bring in from sales has to be there to pay those costs. So there's tremendous pressure on smaller brands to underprice their products, which I think most micros do, you know, just, you know, myself included, just as a, you know, a matter of basic economics, but then the competition, the increase in the number of brands, as well as the pressure we all feel and then also the pressure from the market. I mean, we're constantly being put into these beauty contests against our competitors. And I get it a lot. People say, well, $700 is a bit cheeky to charge for a watch with a Miyota in it. I can get that you know, same list of specs and components from another brand for $500 or $400. I don't, and you're a micro. I wouldn't pay more than $500 for a micro brand. And that just, you know, that's unfortunate reality, but it's, it, it's a statement that comes out of ignorance of the realities that our businesses have to deal with. I mean, I, I have certain production costs I have to pay for just to create the product. And then I have certain operational costs I have to pay just to run the business. My pricing is driven a lot just by those. And then mm. I think the fact that my business has been around and, and has the track record it does enables me to price a little bit higher than my competitors who may just, just launched yesterday. So yeah, I, I think just the, the, the economic reality of the business, you know, the, the MOQs, the production time, and, you know, the pricing pressures create the biggest challenges uh, for brands like mine, even now with, you know, what I feel is an established brand. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand. It's a very crowded market. Um, so are there any are there any micros, though, that you sort of um, admire that, that, that you think are doing the right thing? Maybe not maybe something completely different to you, but is, is there some out there that you you look at and think yeah they've they've found a good niche there or that they, they they're doing the right thing and god i wish i wish i i'd thought of that because that's a genius idea um is there, are there any brands like that or um yeah you do none? yeah, oh, yeah there, i mean there are plenty of there are plenty of brands i admire for different reasons i mean I, mm. i've i've frequently said that i think chip un from avig is the best designer in the business and i still think he's the best if not one of the best um, it, it helps that he's a friend of mine and also we share similar design sensibilities, but I freely admit I've stolen some, some good ideas from him and his designs. Um, I really like what the guys from notice are doing They're, mm. I think, uh, they're, they're doing some things that I think other brands should be adopting, you know, the, and, and not that, you know, like they're assembling in America, which does, I don't think necessarily every brand should be assembling in America, but I like the fact that they're doing it and also talking about it and selling it as a value. They do the regulation. I think they're doing great work with design that, you know, like me, I think they, they have a, you know, a very high attention to detail. Um, mm. I love what Phil Rodenbeck from visitor is doing. His designs are very unique and outside the box. Um, 
you know, Halios. I mean, Jason is a friend, you yeah. know, and, you know, I, I think his design sensibilities have, have changed over the last couple of years. I, I think, you know, for me, you know, I kind of feel like I'm talking about a rock band. It's like, yeah, I like their older stuff better. I do kind of like his older stuff better, but I really admire the way that he's built this just fanatical loyal following mm -hmm. among his customers, you know, and it speaks to his passion and his authenticity as the brand owner, you know, and he's a great guy. Um, I, I love, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other brands, you know, Zelos, Elshan, you know, he, he's a, he, Elshan is a real tough competitor. That guy's a machine. He comes out with so many different designs so quickly, you know, he's selling out so quickly. They're, they're, I think all it's, it's unusual to see him make anything that seems inspired by something else. It all seems very original. Um, mm. You know, and, and he's got, if you, if you go on Facebook uh, watch groups and there's somebody saying, you know, who's your favorite brand, a lot of people are going to say Zelos. So, you know, those are the brands that I look at a lot and admire, and uh, I try to take what I can and learn from all of them. Um, you know, that, that's, that's pretty much it. You know, I, I like Sue Jane from, from uh, Melbourne. You kind of established, you know, sort of classy on a budget, which was sort yeah. of not really a thing among micro brands at the time, he sort of yeah. invented that as a micro brand category and, and he's done well with it. I think that was, um, I think that was my first ever micro brand. Um, and my first automatic, I want to say back when I got into watches was, was, uh, was a Melbourne. Um, I think I picked it up for a couple hundred quid. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's five years ago. As Christopher yeah. Ward has increased their prices over time. Yeah. I always saw Melbourne as being the brand that could kind of slot right in underneath Christopher Ward as yeah. being the go-to choice for classy on a budget because, you know, mm -hmm. where else do you go for that sort of thing? I mean, Seiko Sard maybe, but yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, among micro brands, I think Melbourne really dominates that, that segment of the market. Yeah, no, no, I think, I think that's um, spot on. It's, um, it's a very nice, the designs are very, they, as you say, they're classy, um, yet they're also original. So they, they don't feel like obvious homages to me when i look at them i don't go oh that's just a rip off of this that the other um that they are they are nicely designed pieces so yeah i completely i completely agree with that uh Helios is another one actually that you mentioned that i think yeah it, they're really nice pieces i mean they're, they're all really good all the all the ones you mentioned it's like yeah they're, they're really reputable solid brands um but the the following Helios is has got these days is incredible and it's astonishing to me just how quickly they sell out um when they launch i mean the c4th was um a crazy success and the the new ones the fairwind and universa look look to be very very good um progressions of that c4th design um yeah to be honest, I'm, I'm very tempted to pick one up to be honest my perception is that jason over the last few years has really kind of dialed in his own design sensibilities. You see, you know, a, a progression starting with, I would say the Delphin from like 2014 through now the Fairwind and Universa where, you know, he's, he's really kind of, it's taken like a reductionist approach to design, mm. refining yeah. ideas and, and continually progressing towards perfection of you know, what he likes, what he thinks yeah. the design is. And I, I like that, but at the same time, you know, he, he's, his sensibilities have now kind of veered away from mine a little bit. So, mm. you know, I still go back to the Delphin. I, I really liked 
that model. I thought it was a great case design, um, you know, and it was bigger. You know, his more recent designs tend to be smaller and getting smaller and more refined yeah. and, and more, you know, kind of, I never thought I would say this, but sort of minimalist, you know, they're, they're, yeah. they're, he's kind of done sort of invented minimalist divers as a, mm -hmm. as a subgenre and he's getting really good at it. It's just, you know, it's not my thing anymore. I, I kind of liked his more wild designs of the past. No, I, I completely understand it. So it's one of those things, I guess, an example is of a brand sort of just shifting, shifting that, that identity, that design language. All right. Um, I, I like Jason, but let's not talk about him anymore. It's, about, it's supposed to be about my brand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, Jason's, yeah. A great, Jason's a great guy, but let's not give him any more airtime. <laughs> yes. Welcome to this episode on Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you're right. We'll get we'll get we'll get back to talking about NTH. Um, <laughs> Let's do that, please. Boy, aren't NTH great? <laughs> uh, actually, while talking about design, one of the other questions I've got got on my list. <clears throat> are, um, <clears throat> so, obviously, as we said at the beginning, so you take inspiration, like, like a lot of people, um, from the, the sort of the first ever divers, the vintage divers. Um, but a lot of us geeks sort of have seen sort of cover and, you know, if we were millionaires, we'd all buy one of, um, but obviously that comes with its own share of people who sort of have a negative opinion of drawing, uh, inspiration from those designs. So sort of what's your opinion and what do you really say to the critics who, who basically are the anti homage club, um, who sort of don't like. I guess that, that sort of style. Um, Cause I'm, I'm sure it's something you must've encountered. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I for, let me start with this. I don't think anything I say is going to persuade someone who doesn't like the very notion of an homage to buy yeah. one. It, very true. It's not going to make them buy one from me or from anyone else. It's not going to change their mind about my brand, me personally, or what we're doing. So, you know, I don't know that that conversation really needs to be had, but mm. Homages do get discussed a lot. Um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll rewrite your question as basically, you know, what is my view on this whole debate? And, and my yeah. view is, first off, I think I don't just want to make a watch that's simply a cheaper version of something else. There, mm -hmm. there, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. It just doesn't personally excite me as a designer or a brand owner. Um, and I think that there's a better business case to be made for doing something else. But if you want that, it's out there. There are plenty of cheaper alternatives to more expensive watches that don't differ very much in the overall aesthetic. Um, I think homages start to make more sense when the original source of inspiration is something that is no longer in production and or extremely hard to come by and very hard to justify in terms of cost. So let's take the example of the 5517 mil sub that was made in the, I guess, early seventies. Last I saw one of those sold at auction. First off, they don't make them anymore. So you can't just walk into a store and buy one. And the last one that I saw sold at auction went for more than a hundred thousand dollars. So yeah. It's not as if you have an opportunity to buy one every day. And it's also not as if you, if you could afford one, if you did have the opportunity. So yeah. I think making homages of things like that is, is more logical than simply making a cheaper version of something that you can buy today. I mean, even if a Rolex Submariner costs $10,000, 
it's a lot different than a hundred thousand dollars. You you can save up for that. It's not that far out of the realm of reality for most people in this hobby who might spend that much in a, in a year on watches anyway, but they're buying 30 instead of one. So out of production models that are hard to come by, I think make a lot more sense, even though I understand the criticism that mm. since I wasn't the original designer or my brand didn't produce the original design, I don't have any moral right. Forget about legality. I think the anti-homage crowd argument is you're homaging someone else's design that you weren't the originator of. And if someone's going to homage that, if somebody's going to reproduce that aesthetic, it should be the original brand, which is a fine argument to make as far as it goes, but Rolex isn't doing it. Tudor isn't doing it. So what, what are your choices if you're a consumer and you want something that looks like a long out of production vintage piece that isn't made anymore and can't be had at any price for love or money, and the original brand doesn't want to recreate that. That's where entrepreneurs like like I step, like me, that's where we step in. So I think that's part of it. Um, and then for me also, I think it's important to, there's an argument to be made, and I think it's the Bill Yao and Mark II argument, which is, mm-hmm. it's like a Shelby Cobra replica. You want yeah. something that is as close as possible to the original in every little detail. And that's what Bill Yao is doing. I think mm-hmm. he's really re- trying to get as close as possible to having the real Magilla on your wrist. My, my angle is a little bit of approach is a little bit different. What I say is we don't have to be so slavish in a reproduction. Let, let's be objective and look at what could have been improved in the original If you were going to make that same watch today, we can monkey with the dimensions. We can make it more wearable. We can increase the specs. We can change the movement. We can change the materials. Let's just improve the product while we're still sort of adhering to the basics of the aesthetic. So our homages tend to be different dimensions. There's always some little detail that's different. We try to go out of our way to change the aesthetic or the specs or some feature in some way so that, you know, I, I, I'm embarrassed to, to admit that I do actually think about how to counter the anti-homage argument. But the reality is I, I want our watches to stand up under scrutiny so that we can look at them and point to them and say, okay, yes, it's similar to the Tudor Black Bay 58, mm. but let me give you a half a dozen different differences that should jump mm. off the page at you, you know, when you, when you see them side by side, there's always going to be something we're doing differently. And we do that in the design process. We ask, what can we do that wasn't done before? What can we do differently that, you know, than how it was done before? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fair, fair argument. And I, um, I, I think I have the same stance on um, homage watches really as, as you do in that, you know, when, when the pieces they're referencing are so rare and so expensive, it's like, well, why not? You know, it's, it's, it's not like you can just walk into your local jewelers and pick one up. Um, whereas like on the, on the flip side, you've got plenty of brands um, <clears throat> like uh, Courgeot, uh, you know, off eBay, um, yeah. and you can pick up for a hundred. And it's basically just, you know, I'm sure they're, they're one of those brands that are, are just made in the same factory as the fakes. And they just a different name on the dial, um, not not to, sorry allegedly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, and there, there's another argument to be made here too, and, and this is one I actually had uh, about a year or two ago on, on Facebook. Someone said, "Well, yeah, it's a nice watch, your your Barracuda Vintage Black, but mm. 
it looks like the Tudor Black Bay 58 and everyone would prefer the Tudor. And I thought, oh, that, that, that's interesting because I actually have customers tell me they've owned both and they prefer my watch. I'm not saying my watch is better than the Tudor. I think yeah. they're, they're equally viable alternatives depending on your preferences and values. I recently had a customer who bought a Barracuda vintage black, mm. sold it, bought a Tudor Black Bay 58, sold it and came back and bought the, the, the Barracuda. He decided that he liked the Barracuda better. He liked the price better. He liked the way it fit better. He liked certain features better and he felt more comfortable wearing it. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that a well-done homage isn't necessarily going to be something that we have to assume is inferior to the original. It can be an equally viable alternative to the original. Yeah, no, I think that's, it's a good job. Well, it, price is, you've got to bear the price in mind, haven't you? I mean, you, you can't compare the two just like you know, like for like i don't think you've got to take the price mm. you know yeah, so the guy who did that you know i, I could see myself doing that almost really you know i'd, I'd buy the 500 pound watch because it looks a bit like the tudor and think oh no, i should have bought the tudor and then you buy the tudor and realize you've you know you've had to lay down another two grand to get the tudor and you think oh, do you know what i could do, do something else like two grand the other watch was fine and you go back and buy that it yeah, you know, that it's real money at the end of the day, isn't it? You know, mm. you've got you got to bear that in mind, I think. Absolutely, the money matters, and yeah. you know, the, I don't want to discount that the the money matters, but you know, and I also don't want to lead this into a, a direction of questioning the bang for the buck that the tutor presents with quality at at the price versus what we present. I, I think that's an argument we easily win, but it it, it invites. People saying, oh, your quality is terrible. How can you compare yourself to Tudor, which isn't really what I'm doing. But mm -hmm. the fact that, that is that, you know, the Tudor has a dial with applied markers and a printed gold minute track. Ours is a true vintage style guilt relief dial that doesn't have applied markers. If you like that, you might like it better. Theirs is an aluminum bezel insert. Ours is steel. It's more, it's fully loomed. I mean, the case design is different. They wear very differently. The dimensions aren't identical. So regardless of price, I, I think... Somebody could legitimately prefer ours to the tutor, mm. even if you know the money doesn't matter to them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that's a fair comment, and it reminds me of um, a topic I'm going of the upcoming video I'm going to be doing, which is um, comparing the tutor to the um, the, the uh, Seiko um, SPB line, the 62 mass reissues they've done, because on paper those two watches have pretty much the same specs, except the Tudor's chronometer rated. And I guess, obviously, you could argue the movement has better materials in, in terms of silicon balance spring, et cetera. Um, but apart from that, they're, they're pretty damn close, yet one's over twice the price yeah. of the other. So it's like, um, which is better? Because they both do the same thing, like 90%. So yeah, it's, it's a very interesting thing. And I think... It, whichever way you feel like, but there's valid arguments on both sides, I think. Yeah. And I think that that sort of comparison between two well-known brands, as opposed to between a Tudor mm -hmm. and my brand that isn't as well-known, I think highlights sort of two psychological biases that are prevalent among most of us in the human race. One is we automatically assume the higher priced item is better. <clears throat> and thanks to 40 years of, in, in, you know, investment in marketing in, in favor of the Swiss, we automatically assume the Swiss watch is better. So I think if you strip away those biases, it allows you to have a more objective comparison and you, and you may come to a different conclusion or you may come to the same conclusion, you know, regardless of price, the Tudor is a better watch. I don't know. Mm. When When's the vintage Black Barracuda coming back in stock, Chris? 
Great question. So first off, it, it still is in stock with a handful of our retailers. So if you want one, there's still a handful out there. Um, this segues into, I think, one of the other questions you're going to be asking me, which is, you know, what we have in our pipeline. We have hmm. a new version of the 40 millimeter NTH subs being made. Um, so the Barracuda Vintage Black as it exists today may never be made again. I don't, I don't know that it ever will. I mean, I could be hit by a bus tomorrow. So for now, we're making a new version of the case. And arguably, that's going to make it a whole different watch, even though it'll have the same dial on handset. But we'll have those coming out midsummer. Uh, so June, July, for those in the Southern Hemisphere. What are you doing for, to the case? What, what changes are you making? Well, did I not show you the new case design? No. Or, I don't think are you showing these pictures. All right. So um, we made the 2K1s last year, which are, you know, the, people asked us for a larger version of the 40 millimeter subs. And rather than just scale everything up, to a larger size, we did a complete blank slate redesign. We took inspiration from the original Rolex Sea Dweller and those um, Comex 5513, 5517 subs from that era. Um, we gave it crown guards. We gave it nice chamfered case sides. We, we add a lot of details to it, you know, changed the footprint a little bit. Uh, you know, we made it a modern interpretation of what those watches were at the time. And we made it 610 meter water resistance, which was the original water resistance rating on the Comex subs and the Sea Dweller. So that was the 2K1s. And it was such an interesting project. And I think we've, we're nearing the product, the end of the product life cycle of the 40 millimeter subs. I thought, you know, let's, re let's refresh this design and make the 40 millimeter subs look more like the 2K1s. Let's give it crown guards. Let's do some interesting things with the design, keep the overall, keep the good things about it, but freshen it up a bit. So we're, we're changing it up. It's going to look a lot more like the 2K1. So we'll have crown guards, nice chamfered sides, a little bit more dramatic um, case design. Um, same basic proportions, you know, same 11 and a half millimeter thickness, same 40 millimeter diameter at the bezel. The mid case will actually be a little bit thinner than that. I think it's going to be like 38, um, same 48 millimeter lug to lug. The dials, hands, and bezel inserts, crowns will all be compatible. So, you know, if you have a bad crown, we can replace it. Even if you have the, the, the older model, uh, you can the bezels will be swap, you know, interchangeable. So those replacement parts will be there still, um, but it'll be a different case design. Okay. Are you tempted to, um, I know we've talked about this before, um, but are you tempted to uh, change the bezel insert? I know you like steel for its durability. Um, but obviously different materials give different aesthetics. Are you tempted to sort of make that concession for design purposes or is it a case of steel's the way to go, baby? I, I'm a big proponent of steel, as you know, uh, for bezel inserts. And, and my arguments are vary, but you know, I'll give you sort of a highlighted bullet point list. The first thing is the entire watch is made out of stainless steel. If, if ceramic is a superior material, why not make the entire watch out of, out of ceramic? The only thing that, that isn't made out of steel on a typical watch is the crystal because it has to be see-through. Um, yeah. But everything else is typically steel. So if the rest of the watch is steel, why does, this, why does the bezel need to be ceramic? The argument seems to be that the part of the watch that you're most likely to scratch will be the bezel insert. And ceramic is a less scratchable, if not impossible to scratch material. True enough as far as it goes. However, mm. it's more expensive to make, so it's gonna raise the price of the watch. It's more expensive to replace. So if you happen to re need a replacement, it's more, it's more expensive and more difficult to replace. 
we've seen some issues with other brands using ceramic inserts where the loom starts to patina prematurely. Um, we've seen loom completely fall out. You know, there's a difference in per, uh, the porousness or porosity of the materials that affects how well that loom adheres to the underlying material and how, you know, you know how you can preserve the, the appearance for longer. Um, but my real big problem with ceramic is people tend to look at the positives of that material without fairly acknowledging the negatives. There is no such thing as a perfect material. I don't think, I think each, hmm. each option or alternative has trade-offs, pros and cons. So the con with steel is it's more likely to be dented or scratched. My counter to that is, yeah, but it's impossible to break. And we put the thickest application of PVD and DLC on our bezels to make them very durable. I personally have seen the results that, you know, which indicate that our, our bezels are extremely durable, extremely wear resistant, um, as opposed to ceramic, just Google broken ceramic bezel or broken ceramic watch. And you won't have any shortage of images showing broken Rolex ceramic inserts, broken, you know, ceramic cases, um, which is, I think just a way of highlighting what a bad idea ceramic case is. Well, if, a bad, if ceramic cases are bad ideas, I think ceramic bezel inserts are bad ideas. And again, there's a bias there. The fact that they are more expensive allows the brand to charge you more. And there's a human bias that thinks if it costs more, it must be better. And if all the high-end brands are doing it, why aren't you? It's a high-end thing. My, my counter is we're not necessarily a high-end brand and I'm not necessarily taking my cue from them. I do what I think is best for my customers long-term and I think steel is a better choice. That's fair enough. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. Like obviously ceramic can just crack uh, on, under impact <laughs> and then you're pretty, pretty, you know, you're, you're up a certain creek without a paddle. Uh, and, and I acknowledge the odds of you completely breaking or shattering an insert are pretty low. Mm -hmm. But so are the odds of you denting your steel bezel. But the, mm. the reality is what's easier to live with. If you dent your bezel, are you going to feel as much pressure to replace it mm. as you would if you cracked your ceramic insert? I, I suspect that a broken ceramic insert is going to present more of an eyesore generally to most people than a dent or a scratch in your steel bezel. So, mm. you know, it, it's about compromise and finding the right compromise to make. And so in my opinion, just my opinion, I'm not claiming that I'm the authority. My opinion is steels presents the better compromise, the better balance, all things considered. Mm. Oh, which is fair enough. Um, and you we also, obviously we talked earlier about the um, Barracuda vintage black. That's what led us on to this. Um, and I'm just going to go to a, an, a question from one of our audience members. I'm going to assume from Instagram, their username is punishment mode. An interesting choice. Um, but they ask, are you planning on releasing any uh, Rolex 6538 inspirations in 38 millimeters? Um, so yeah, uh, would you ever do a smaller diver or do you think 40, 40 mils the sweet spot? Well, I think the question is two, in, two questions in one. Uh, yeah. I'll take the easier one. Am I planning on making a smaller diver? No immediate plans uh, of any inspiration. I think that yeah. You know, I, I've had to contemplate who our target customer really is and, you know, mm -hmm. what product mix makes the most sense, you know, from a sales perspective. I think a 40 millimeter diver makes more sense than a 38 millimeter diver, even though I acknowledge there are plenty of men and women out there who would like a 38 millimeter diver better than a 40. I think mm -hmm. there are more people who prefer a 40. So I'm, and I'm happy, make, 
making that size. Um, the 6538 inspiration, uh, that's the, I think that's the Sean Connery, James Bond sub that mm. he wore um, yeah. in those, those movies. Um, so there's a few different versions, but I think many people associate the Bond sub, even though it wasn't the one Connery wore with the 369 Explorer dial. So we did make two different versions of the Oberon version one, version two, that have that 369 dial. Both of them had a waffle texture, which wasn't a, a, a feature of the original, getting back to you know how the homage is different. Um, mm. But so we, we did make those. And I think that the other version of the 6538 that has the more traditional dials, you know, the non-numerical indice dial, um, mm. I'm not sure what, what is different enough about that, that we need to go out of our way to do something inspired by that. I think most of the dials we're making that follow that same basic aesthetic are close enough. Mm. That's fair enough. Um, and, and the question from another uh, audience member, uh, Lauren's, I hope I'm pronouncing this last name correctly, Lurs. Um, sorry if I haven't. Um, but they ask, um, any plans to release models that aren't dive watches? Um, specifically, they say maybe a, an NTH field watch or a sports watch? I know it's something you've talked about and said you have ideas in the pipeline, but are, are any of them sort of field sports watches? Maybe. Um, so my design team has two other guys on it, Aaron from Scotland mm. and Rusty from Louisiana. Um, mm. we, we at various times have worked on a non-diver, something, you know, with a stainless steel bezel surround that has more of a pilot or a field watch aesthetic. You know, it's kind of your basic tool watch. Um, we never really finished it. Sometimes it's because we, we, we just get onto other projects or, you know, more pressing needs pop up. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's, we just don't particularly, or I personally don't particularly feel a strong sense of inspiration in what we're doing. And so the urgency kind of tapers off. Um, there's also been some ideas I've had that I'd like to pursue to do something completely different that doesn't necessarily fall neatly into a, a established watch category, such as field watch, pilot watch, diving watch, something that's a bit more outside the box, still vintage inspired, um, not necessarily a dress watch, but, you know, something that, you know, everybody's making a pilot watch or a field watch sometimes. I mean, I remember a few years ago, I thought it really was the year of the pilot watch. This year seems to be the year of the more modestly sized 38, 39 millimeter you know, explorer style watch. I think that's just kind of how the industry goes. Um, mm. But I, I don't see very many people doing things that are much more outside the box than that. So I'd like to do something that's really kind of a curveball and people don't see coming. I just have to find the time to work on it and, and, and be yeah. persistent in my motivation. It, it's hard sometimes, you know, I, I do a lot of different things here and every mm. email that comes across my desk distracts me from whatever design I've been working on. Any plans for a chronograph? I get that question a lot. So our original, the, I had a brand before NTH and the first model was a chronograph and I really liked chronographs at the time. I get people asking me, when am I going to make another chronograph? The challenge is movements. Um, mm. I don't love, I don't really even very much like any of the choices in mechanical movements. They all have their drawbacks. They're all fairly large, fairly expensive, fairly complicated. The one that isn't that all of those things, the Chinese ST19 is not all that reliable. Uh, in my experience, I've used it. Um, and it still isn't that inexpensive and it's still not small. So, you know, there's those challenges. And, and then you get to, okay, well, what about quartz and mecha quartz? Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like 
plain old courts will, will, as a micro brand, I think it's very difficult to make the business case for making something that already exists in abundance being made by much larger brands with better economies of scale. Um, Mecca Quartz is something that a lot of micro brands have done. Um, I don't really love very many of the, the Mecca Quartz layouts. You know, a lot of them have that 24 hour dial without, you know, and no running seconds. The ones that have the running seconds tend to be either the, the Valjoux 7750 layout with subdials at 12, nine and, and six, as opposed to bi-compacts or even tri-compacts, but the more traditional Daytona type layout. Mm -hmm. um, they are not necessarily cheap movements. I think you still end up with some of that anti-quartz bias that a lot of enthusiasts have. Um, and, you know, there's still some reliability issues. You know, I know from my factory as well as some peers that you sometimes get issues where the chronograph seconds doesn't reset perfectly aligned with 60. And unlike a quartz movement where there's typically a built-in mechanism to recalibrate it, with a mecha quartz, you actually have to take the watch apart, take the seconds hand off and reset it. There's ways to try to minimize that in pre-production, but it's a, it's a challenge that I'd rather not deal with. I'm pretty happy making the, the three hand watches we're making right now. What about a GMT? I get that question a lot too. Um, again, it's a similar challenge. There, there are no Japanese mechanical GMT movements that are available to micro brands like mine, um, unless somebody knows uh, who to talk to inside of Orient. Um, they don't typically wholesale their movements. Um, not typically, at least there's a few exceptions. Um, so that leaves you with Swiss and, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Swiss mechanical movements generally, but even if I could get past that, what are my choices? You know, the true GMT that operates like the Rolex GMT, which seems to be the market's preference is an ETA caliber that's fairly new and ETA isn't wholesaling their calibers anymore. Uh, so that's off the table. The next best choice would seem to be a 2893 or a clone of it, uh, but that's not a true GMT. It's not a cheap movement. It is a thin movement, so I like that about it. And we have looked at how we could modify the NTH subs case to accommodate that movement. It, you know, it's conceivably it could be done, um, but I think knowing what those movements would cost from ETA or from Solita or whoever or something like it. You know, it, it takes a, a watch like the NTH subs that's currently retailing for $700 and it's instantly a $900, $1,000 watch. Mm. And I think that's, you know, a, I've seen too many debates play out online where guys say, I don't want to spend more than $500 for a micro brand, you know, and, and if you mm. price your, I mean, we're already at 700 typically for most of our models, you start getting up close to a thousand dollars. You're up against Chris Ward. You're up against, you, you know, Oris, maybe a used Omega or Zen, if you're lucky. You know, there's a lot of interesting alternatives at that thousand dollar price point that people, I think, will very often lean more towards than okay. a micro brand GMT. And I say that fully, you know, understanding that brands like Zelos you know, have done very well with GMTs, even at a higher price point. So, you know, it's just something that I, I'm not feeling very strongly enough uh, to do right now. Can you get hold talking about the movements? Can you get hold of the Seiko 6R64? Because that's um, a true GMT. And uh, I just I've just taken it because I've just covered the press release of their new sharp sharp edge GMT series that they did um, a couple of weeks ago. Well, congrats, just, congratulations! You mentioned a, a, a caliber I've never heard of before. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I'm, just, 
I never never knew of it until I did the press release. And I was like, oh, these are true GMTs. All right, well, as, as we're talking, I have a web browser open. I can go and look at the TMI as time module. That's Seiko's wholesale operation. Mm-hmm. What is the caliber name? The, the what? 6R? Uh, 6R64. All right, well, it's not listed among their NE calibers, which tend to be the, uh, the 6R range. Yeah. I'm not seeing it. It doesn't, it doesn't appear to be listed among the NH calibers. Um, so it doesn't appear to be something that they'll wholesale. I, I've, there's another caliber. I think it's the 6L35 or 25 or 45. It's the one that they put in the uh, Sarah 015 of the, the baby snowflake. Yeah. They, they, those are the, the expensive ones, aren't they? Yeah. Well, the models are expensive, but the Japanese yeah. have a habit of, they come out with a caliber like the 9015 mm. in, in Miyota's case, and they only use it in their own watches. They don't wholesale it at first. And the, mm. the prices of their own watches, which use those movements, tend to be much higher than the prices of watches from other brands that end up coming along later when those manufacturers are willing to wholesale those movements. So Miyota 15-based mm. Citizen, prior to those movements becoming available to brands like mine, might have been an $800 watch mm-hmm. 10 years ago. Today, you can find Miotas and watches that cost, you know, the 9015 and watches that cost $500. So yeah. I was hopeful that part of this is I attended the Hong Kong show in 2016. I spoke with people from Seiko. One of the VPs at Seiko who I spoke to told me that they had something to compete head to head against the 9015 coming mm-hmm. and that I would like it. Well, that was 2016 or 2018. I guess it was 2018. We still haven't seen it yet. So when they came out with that, 6L whatever. Yeah. I thought that was going to be it. I thought, okay, this is it. They're going to make this caliber. They're going to use this caliber in their own watches exclusively at first. Mm. It won't be long. They'll start wholesaling it. So I've been waiting on that. And when they wholesale it, I expect it to be low enough in price that we can make watches that come in well below what Seiko's with that movement have typically, you know, been priced at so far, but it hasn't happened yet. And it's, what I like about it is it's thin. It's actually thinner than the Miyota 9015, which I love. It's high beat. Um, it's accurate. It, it's from Seiko. So you expect it to be reliable. You know, it has all the things going for it that the current generation 6R35 doesn't have going for it. Mm. Yeah. It will be interesting to see what, when that is available, um, just how it affects the market. But to more directly answer your question, I, I don't see the GMT from Seiko available until time. Um, that's time a shame. I thought I thought I thought that might be the case, but I thought, oh, that might be. A, if it is available, I think, or when it becomes available um, for third parties, I think that'll be a, a strong contender for a lot of people looking to do a, a GMT. The drop-down menu of functions doesn't even include GMT twenty-four hour forehand. Nothing that nothing that you would think indicates a GMT. So it just, it just doesn't appear to be available, at least not yet. That's a shame, but oh, oh well, got to make do. Yeah. Cool. I'm just going through. I think we've co- we've covered actually a lot of the other audience questions. So if I haven't read yours out when you're listening back to this, probably because we've already covered it. So sorry, guys. Um, on a bit of a tangent, um, Banana L16 asks, "What made you get into watches? Um, is that one you want to cover?" I get this question so much. I actually had the answer printed on the back of my business card recently. Um, I'll make this the shortest possible version of the story because uh, it's, it's long. I was looking for a business to get into. I was looking at a completely different industry. Uh, that idea 
started to fall apart just as I was let go. I was told my services were no longer needed at my prior employer. Um, mm. So the next day, my water heater stopped uh, or broke. And then the day after that, my watch stopped. And it was a quartz watch that I had only owned about a year. Um, and because I had an idea for a business that was kind of, you know, that plan was crumbling um, and I was looking for something else to get into, um, my watch stopped. And, and watches tend to be, as a product, very similar to what I was pursuing prior to this. Um, it was like, a, you know, the, the cliche of the light bulb going on over my head. I thought, wow, this is interesting. You know, that I'm, I'm fed up with going to the mall to get my batteries replaced in my watches. Mm. What does a good watch cost, an automatic watch cost? So I started researching. I have a business, you know, finance background. So I started re researching the industry, the market. I found very quickly, you know, the, the, the wealth of discussion happening about watches online, um, which I think is extremely valuable, priceless market intelligence. That was a, a, a factor that I considered. Um, and I, I, I like to joke that, thank God my watch stopped that day, because if it didn't, I might be selling water heaters right now. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I started, I found my way very quickly to the online forums. I, I mm -hmm. found forums themselves, the, you know, watch geeks as interesting as watches, if not more interesting. Um, and within a very short time, I, I got very interested very quickly in starting a watch company. And the rest, as they say, is history. Indeed. <laughs> so, Chris, before we wrap it up, uh, when can people expect the new tropics to be available? They're coming at the end of the month, hopefully. I mean, they're in assembly right now. We had... Um, we had an issue with the bezels on the on them being uh, misaligned or printed the wrong way. The printing was misaligned, something like that. So they had to go back. Uh, and of course, they're internal bezels. So you can't just <laughs> take all the inserts out and reprint them and replace them. You have to take the whole case apart. So that, you know, added some delay. But I, I typically factor that into my delivery estimate. So I think we're still on track to deliver when I originally said we would, which would be end of March, beginning of April. Um, if you like, I can quickly run down what makes the version two different than the version one tropics. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah that, that's a good idea. So yeah. Walk us through what, what's different between the, uh, the version one and version two tropics. Well, the, the, the biggest and most obvious change is a different movement. We're, we're going to be using the Miyota nine series rather than the STP one uh, 11s, which we did use in the originals. Um, also, you know, quickly visible is a different bracelet. The original was a beads of rice with an expansion clasp. This one is going to be a, a, Likewise, vintage inspired, but, you know, less commonly seen design, vintage inspired bracelet, five lengths with a more traditional double locking, folding dive watch, cla dive watch clasp. Um, we've got prior to this, you know, the Tropics have always been the Antilles and the Azores, you know, which are differentiated by their dial patterns. The Antilles has the baton markers. The Azores has the three, six, nine, 12 numbering. Um, we have new versions of both. So the Antilles which there were four colors of those before. Now we just have two and we've done, um, we've added a, a very interesting rough grain texture to the dial that looks like uh, like wood grain, almost like driftwood, which, you know, in keeping with the Tropics theme. So we have one we call dark rum. It's kind of a very deep mahogany brown uh, with a, 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 like a fume color fade to it. We have one we call Contro, which is, uh, they're all named after booze, by the way. So it's dark rum, Contro. Um, the Contro is more of like a, uh, kind of like a Gibson Les Paul guitar, you know, that sort of sunburst, yellow, yeah. orange, red, uh, sort of color scheme. Yeah. The Azores, the original Azores had printed dials with sort of a rough texture in the middle. 
These, we've given them a much more complex dial design, which presented some challenges. So both the middle of the dial and the outer uh, portion of the dial are textured. Um, the outer portion, I, I, the best description I can give, the texture on the outer portion is kind of like denim. It has that sort of feel to it and look, especially with the blue. The inner texture is that same rough wood grain texture, but instead of being vertical as, or uh, horizontal as it is on the Antilles, mm. it's like uh, radial. So it's not as obviously uh, wood texture, but it's the same sort of uh, process to create that. Additionally, it also has a color fade, two of them. Mm. The inner section and the outer section each have a distinct fade, uh, and the dial is no longer printed. It, the markers are now applied, and uh, it still has the 3612 numbering, inside those loom patches, which presented a problem. That's easy to do when you are printing those, but when you create an applied index that you're filling with loom, having something in the middle of that, which isn't that uncommon. I mean, Eterna does it with the Contiki. We had just never mm. done it before and our dial supplier had never done it. So we had to kind of experiment a little bit to figure out how best to execute that. So we had a couple of different iterations of uh, sample dials that we went through. So it's a much more complex dial on the on both models, more limited color choices, different movement, different bracelet, different clasp, um, same basic proportions, very slight change to the case dimensions that nobody's going to notice. So it's not worth talking about. Um, same specs um, and and pretty much same price. They're going to be seven twenty five, mm -hmm. still including the tropical style rubber strap um, and our engraved uh, buckle on that. So different different watch, but you know close enough to still call it a tropics. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I, I can see the evolution from from the Mark 1s. Um, and I mean, my, my favorite, I, I like the dial layout of the Antilles, but um, the colors of the Azores, to be honest, um, yeah. especially the blue Curacao. Yeah. Um, I think that's really nice. I'm, I'm, I don't like to pull watches from inventory because I'd rather sell them to somebody <laughs> else than put them in my own collection. But I'm seriously considering putting a blue Azores into my own collection. That's that's a pretty one. The green is nice. So I, I've had the prototypes here for a while. You guys have them there now. You know how yeah, we do. Like. But I've been wearing those prototypes uh, and the green is, is gotten, yeah. you know, its fair share of uh, time in my rotation. Mm. Yeah, the green is, yeah. I, I think green's an underrated color in watches. You don't see it too much, but when it's like a nice sort of emerald green like that, um, yeah, it's very it striking. Really striking. Yeah, exactly. How, how many of each SKU are you making, Chris? Uh, so we're, the Contro is going to be no date only. The others are all going to be date or no date. So uh, there's seven different versions. We're making, we're assembling 25 of each, just 175 pieces in this release. We have the parts to make another 175 whenever we want to do that. Um, so we'll see how this release goes. And um you know, if there's immediate demand and we sell out too quickly, we'll make more right away. If not, we'll wait a while and come back in, I don't know, six months, a year and make the rest. Maybe we'll even switch it up with some different dials. Um, okay. Yeah. Which, which do you expect to be the best seller? Huh. I, I, could, I could take this a few different ways. I think blue is always a safe bet. Um, and I think it's the most immediately striking design. But I think there are so many blue watches out there competing for wrist time in people's collections. I think the brown, the dark rum, might be a surprising hit. Um, likewise, you know, green or contro, the, uh, the absent Azores or the uh, contro Antilles mm -hmm. could be surprise hits. But I, my money would be either on the blue or the dark rum. Okay. Yeah. 
So we've got customers signing up for email notifications when they come in. And uh, the blue is out in front at the moment. Yeah, doesn't surprise yeah. me. My other retailers are doing the same thing. And I think the dark rum is, in some cases, the the, the leader, if you know, we're in second place and a strong second. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. People have asked me, you know, to make a black version, and I don't know how we do that with the, with these sort of themes, the way that the, the dials are made. So I think the dark rum is probably the closest thing to that. So I, I think that could be a factor as well. Okay. It's in, yeah, the the, um, the texture on the Antilles actually is very um, reminiscent of sort of Grand Seiko to me, and then you like they've got the white birch out, and it's that sort of that grainy, as you say, like a wood like texture is very reminiscent, and I think that 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 there's plenty of opportunities there for different dial colors. And I think it'd work really well in some other, I mean, again, look, just look to Grand Seiko, I mean, or Seiko in general. Uh, I'm not familiar with the one you're speaking about, unless we're, I'm, I'm thinking, of, unless you're thinking about what, what people say is like the snowflake texture. Uh, um, I, I think it's basically, um, I'm going to get this completely wrong. There's going to be some Grand Seiko fan on here who says how wrong I am. But I think it's like basically like almost like an updated snowflake. But it's sim sim very similar in style. Um, I don't know. If the, I don't know if this is interesting or not, but I'll tell you anyway. So, where that texture came from kind of ties back into what I was talking about earlier with you know some of the alternative design ideas we've been working with. You know, we were looking at non-divers. Uh, there were some funky designs from the '70s uh, from you know long extinct brands. There was one watch in particular that had kind of that sunburst. Gibson Les Paul kind of color fade to it, but also had an interesting horizontal dial texture that looked mm. like wood paneling, almost like you'd see on a kitchen floor. And I just mm. thought that was really interesting. So I sent it over, I sent the image over to my factory and said, could we do something like this? Can we do something that, you know, kind of e evokes the feeling of, you know, like wood paneling, you know, kind of, again, it, it was sort of a, a, thing, a big thing in the seventies. A lot of people bought into wood paneling. Um, so that's what we, we came up with. They, they said, you know, we can stamp this into the dial. It'll be a rough texture. So that's what we came up with. You know, one of the iterations we had, the, the texture wasn't really well aligned, uh, you know, parallel lines and, and more or less horizontal. So like I said, it, it's, that's kind of how design happens. You know, you, you have an idea for something, you, you, you abandon whatever that something was and you think you're going to pick it up again someday. But in the meantime, you pick up some other idea and you go, oh, you know, we have this kind of ready in our hip pocket. We could just incorporate that idea. So that's how that came together. Oh, that's quite interesting, um, interesting to hear. But I'll, uh, I'll have to send you um, a picture of the Seiko I'm talking about. Please do. Uh, so yeah um but yeah so that's great um well thank you very much for joining us chris it's been an absolute pleasure and very insightful and interesting to hear a little about the brand a little about yourself um and yeah um i'm excited to see um how these tropics do and uh, what else you've got up your sleeve in the future i appreciate you having me on thank you very much for the opportunity no great problem. to speak to you both Thanks, Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. It's a thank pleasure you talking much. to you. And, and let's thank all the guys that submitted questions. We appreciate that. Yep, oh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So thank you. thank you to anyone who submitted a question. Um, if you didn't hear the exact question read out, I think it's probably because um, Chris has already covered it, so I didn't want to <laughs> get him to answer the same thing he just talked about. But thank you anyway. Um, thank you very much for listening, and we hope to catch you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Time to Unwind podcast. 
If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. So please leave your ratings of the show through your podcast app. And be sure to reach out on social media at WatchGecko with your thoughts. Adding a rating and a comment really does help the podcast. So we'd be grateful for your support. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye.